them figuring out that like none of them can guard her and they just get more and more frustrated. Welcome to Spinsters, a podcast where our draft grade is always an A. I'm Jordan Liggins. That's Haley. Harry's here. Sierra's here. We have some really special guests, former GM Ryan McDonough and former agent Graham Boone. Um, to talk some pre-draft stuff, and it's so fun, so fun. few housekeeping things before we get into it. Shout out to Harry's friend, Avery's friend, Elena, who is a big listener of Spinsters. Shout out to you, Elena. We love you. Um, and always subscribe to our YouTube. After the break, draft talk. When you're scouting prospects, you need a powerful partner. You need Indeed. Sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit towards your first sponsored job. Plus, earn up to $500 extra in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit Indeed.com slash Spinsters to learn more. Um, so wait, to start, can you, can both of you introduce yourself and then tell me how you know each other? Sure, I can jump in. So Seems I'm like Graham you guys Boone. are old friends. Yeah, we've known <laughs> each other for a number of years now. Um, so I'm Graham Boone. I'm the Vice President of Partnerships at this wonderful podcast company, Blue Wire. Um, but actually spent my first uh, about nine years of my career as a player agent in the NBA. Uh, first with Williams & Connolly, um, which was a white-collar litigation law firm known for like Watergate and the Lewinsky scandal, like the defense representation for all of those big companies, but we had a small boutique um, sports department where I was an agent alongside Jim Tanner um, for about four years. And then we opened up our own shop called Tandem Sports in 2013 and spent another five years there. Um, so we represented guys like Tim Duncan and Jeremy Lin and Ray Allen and Grant Hill. Um, and through that, got to know Ryan um, when he was with the Suns, um, but also found out during that time we were both uh, Tar Heel graduates. So we've, uh, we've stayed in touch for, for a number of years now. Yeah, to, to reiterate uh, a lot of what Graham said, um, I was on the team side when he was on the agent side. I was with the Boston Celtics from 2003 to 2013. We had a good run there, especially toward the latter part of that time, led by Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett. Um, and then the Suns came calling in 2013. So about nine years ago, I was hired as GM of the Suns, was there five and a half years, um, ups and downs. We, we kind of built some of the current team uh, Devin Booker, Mikael Bridges, DeAndre Ayton, and those guys. I get let go in October 2018. Um, so I was there about five and a half years. In the last, I guess, three or four years now, been on the broadcast side. I'm an Odyssey NBA insider, uh, work for NBA TV. I'll be down in Atlanta next week, anchoring their free agent coverage. And then uh, also work for NBC Sports Boston and do some teaching with Sports Business Classroom, uh, which will be going again up, up in Las Vegas in a few weeks where I bumped into Graham and a few other friends a year ago. So it sounds like a lot, but uh, I actually have a lot more time now than when I was an <laughs> assistant GM of the Celtics or GM of the Phoenix Suns. I bet. Um, yeah. Even though, yeah, you're definitely staying busy. On the on this side, I've the thing I've heard from players the most is that you guys don't actually know how it is in a number of situations. And I'd imagine it's the same um, coming from the team side or even Graham, the agency side. So what are some misconceptions that you see especially around this time like draft coverage and free agency coverage yeah i can jump in i mean i think ryan's gonna have such a different and probably more interesting perspective based on 
he had a lot of control um, in that time. They, they get to draft the players. They get to sign the players. Whereas an agent, we have a smaller subset of people representing. And so we're um, working with a much smaller pool. And candidly, during the draft process, agents don't have a ton of power. Um, you hear these stories, and I think it's a lot of like fodder for social media that certain agents can push a player to a certain team. They can get a GM to do them a favor. You're not going to get a GM to do you a favor with when these are tens of millions of dollars of decisions um, with both salary cap implications, their actual player contracts, the marketing dollars that are invested in this. Um, so from an agency perspective, you know, our job was to completely position a player. You're scheduling logistics for the pre-draft workouts. You're getting them in shape. You're sending them to IMG or to Peak or wherever the, um, the, their training facility is. You're doing media training, which is super important. I know we'll talk about this a couple times during this pod, is how important the interviews are when the players go speak to the teams, whether it's in Chicago at the Combine or in the uh, in-person workouts. So making sure they're putting their best foot forward there. Um, so from a lot of people don't, don't expect that you know, these players are in probably their most vulnerable positions they're going to be in as a professional. I mean, it's like a two-month condensed timeline where you are 100% being flown around the country and, and doing a roadshow of your talent. These teams have spent hundreds of hours scouting your tape, talking to your high school coaches, talking to your family members. They've done deep dives in your social media. So if you're following some reckless accounts, they know. Um, and so it, it's it's really <laughs> – it's really a time to maximize potential and positioning, but I just had so much empathy for the players because so much in their life can change in this, you know, 30 day, 60 day period, um, whether they go fourth to the wrong team or 10th to the right team, um, whether they fall out of the lottery, whether they get traded on draft night or whether they don't hear their name until two hours after they were expecting it when their entire city's hopes are riding on it. I mean, so I always just felt such empathy for the players because it's a very unique time for them yeah totally i think from my perspective Haley, the draft process really is initially a marathon up until probably april or may and then the last couple months are a sprint you're at mile 23 and you're sprinting to the finish line on the team side because uh, the college season is over obviously that ends with the final four some of the international prospects are still playing in, in europe or other other you know other places around the world so you can go watch them play in person um, but really uh, your job i think as an executive is to juggle so many different balls and to not let any of them hit the ground um, because think of you know what you have going on and, and it's exacerbated i guess in a way if you're on one of the more successful teams who's playing late into the playoffs into the conference finals nba finals then your season's still going but you're also trying to focus on the pre-draft process uh keep in mind that as we record this just a few days before the draft free agency is next week i mean a week from tomorrow i'll be in atlanta on nba tv talking about free agency the week after that uh, i'll be in las vegas uh, for summer league so, so that's what the cycle is and the schedule is so you're trying to balance all of those things and then from an executive perspective, um, most of the on-court evaluation is done relatively early because, you know, again, the season ends in April. Um, but now is the uh, the medical information, the intel, um, you know, in terms of players' background, character, work ethic, um, also the in-person interviews that, that Graham referenced. 
and then the pre-draft workouts. And, and that's a scramble and it gets real competitive because, um, you know, Graham on the agent side wants to do what's best for his client, which on the team side you understand, but on the team side, you want as much information and access to the player as possible. Um, and, and if a guy's good enough, all 30 teams want that player, you, you know? And so there's kind of a tug of war <laughs> behind the scenes that goes on where uh, the teams are recruiting uh, the, the agent and the player to come to their city and spend time with them. Uh, and then the a- agency is trying to do what's best for their clients. So that's kind of the process in a nutshell. There's a lot to it. Uh, keep in mind that only actually, actually I was going to say 60, but I guess a couple draft picks got stripped. 58 players will get drafted on Thursday night because, uh, you know, I guess a couple of teams got docked second round picks, uh, but 58 guys will get drafted. Um, but you evaluate hundreds, you, you know, so that's the other part of it is um, how do you kind of narrow that funnel to uh, who's going, who you think is going to be available at different ranges how you're flexible and can pivot based on who's on the board or potential trade options as well. And then get into the undrafted guys and lining up summer league and uh, free agent signings and all that. So uh, that was probably a long winded answer, but um, again, there's a lot going on. And as, as an executive, you're trying to keep everybody afloat and not let anything hit the floor. Yeah. And I'll jump in here real quick too, because that reminded me of, of a, it was a, it was a dance between agents and teams when you had a player that everyone wanted. Um, and so the team, a lot of teams are trying to get them into the facility to meet with them, to do a medical evaluation because they're a real opportunity to draft them. And as an agent, we're trying to figure out who else they're bringing in that day. Cause if it's a bad matchup for the guy, or if it's a, you know, a small workout with only three guys, I don't want a very good player to get exposed because he's a, an underdeveloped 19 year old, but they're bringing in some 23 year old bruiser who's going to mm-hmm. just punish him all day. Who is probably not going to be like an NBA player, but it could hurt my guy's draft stock. Um, and I had a one quick story that John Henson was our client in 2012. Um, he ended up going 14 to the Bucks, and I called one of the teams after. I truthfully can't remember which team it was, but after we worked out, you always call the teams to find out how he did and, and any you know any feedback. And I called to have the workout go, and he goes, "It was terrible." I go, "What do you mean it was terrible? John's been playing great." He goes, "John ruined everyone else's workout because no one could get a shot off in the drills." Because he was blocking everything out of bounds. So he made our guy look great and it ruined the evaluation of every other player. So every other agent was probably furious they put him in, in with John because <laughs> he, he, he killed their momentum. So that was a good example, but I'm sure we had some bad ones too. <laughs> That's so interesting. And I, I'm interested too of like the hype. Like how are the agent side and the executive, how are you managing the hype of a player? How much are you buying into the hype because now there's instagram there's mixtapes there's everyone's talking on social about everything how does that play a factor in versus you know the medical eval the stats the personality how do those kind of balance each other when you guys are thinking of a player that's a challenge question yeah (laughs) it's a a challenge uh jordan and i won't say the player's name uh, guys, you know, I played in the NBA, had some Say success. He's been around for a decade. <laughs> but um, my first draft as GM of the Phoenix Suns, I, I'd only been in Arizona for a couple of weeks. And um, this was a player who was projected, you know, in the range we were picking in the first round. And I had dinner with him uh, the night before because he obviously he's try to spend as much time with the players as possible. Um, just a little bit about the process for your listeners who don't know. Teams can get up to two visits. Uh, one can be for 48 hours and one can be for 24 hours. But they have to be separate. 
you can't combine them. And I bring that up because, you know, obviously what, what the league's worried about is the teams at the top kind of hoarding players. If there are no restrictions, the Orlando Magic would say, well, you know, Jabari Smith and Paolo Bencaro and, and Chet Holmgren, come spend weeks in Orlando and go to Disney mm-hmm. World and, and hang out. They, they don't want that. They want it to be a relatively balanced process. Uh, so anyways, I, I had dinner with, with, with this kid and, you know, he's a nice enough guy, uh, but I could tell he just didn't really get what was about to happen and what was coming. Um, so I asked him, you know, I, I said, well, what are you thinking about the workout tomorrow? He said, workout tomorrow. He said, I, th- I thought I was just here to like meet you guys and, you know, hang out, like get to know you a little bit better. And I said, no, no, no. Like we're going to put you on the court and, and work you out. We had agreed with the agent to do a one on zero workout, uh, which Graham can talk a little bit more about, you know, the, the pros and cons of doing a competitive multiplayer workout and then just a one on zero workout. But uh, we're going to do a one on zero. At least I thought that was the plan. And the guy goes, oh, shoot, I didn't bring any basketball sneakers. I said, you, you came to visit an NBA team. You didn't bring basketball. Like, what do you think we're doing here? You know, so, so that was that was like a, a flag right in the process. We ended up not drafting a kid again. He's done OK. Um, you know, I guess relative to expectations, he's been in the league, I guess, most of the last decade. But it was one of those things you say, wow, like this kid is getting some bad advice. He did end up switching agents and agencies multiple times. And, and that's actually something that I'd be interested to get Graham's take on, because a lot of times, uh, you know, there's certainly good up and coming agents and groups, uh, but sometimes there are these groups who, if a player says, you know, he's represented by them, you say, wait a minute, who are they? Who else do they represent? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're kind of, you know, startup, so to speak, or disruptive. Um, they, they haven't been through the process before. And as you guys can probably imagine, when you have a young player, especially a kid who's 19, 20 years old, in, in particular, if he does not come from a basketball family and has not been in this position around the game very much before in the pre-draft process. Uh, sometimes the kids come in and you say, well, wait a minute, you feel more like a, an uncle or a father figure in terms of trying to not, not just pick them or not, but help them through the process in terms of what it's going to be like, what's coming. And then when they get drafted um, that, Hey, look, you know, we start to, uh, summer league practice in a week. We're going to be up in Vegas with ESPN and NBA TV showing games the week after that. Um, you know, this is a shotgun start and you better be ready to go. A lot of the guys don't seem to comprehend that. Some do obviously, but the ones that don't, uh, you worry about uh, how their career is going to get started, which is obviously so important. Hmm. The movie that, that I always thought best represented like what it was like probably to be drafted into the NBA was the Lizzie McGuire movie. I'm sure you guys have seen it. Um, But basically Lizzie McGuire is just a regular girl. And then she goes to Europe and she looks just like this big Italian star. And so she has to perform as her. And she's like all of a sudden a superstar overnight. And I've, I've always thought that the parallels there are like (laughs) perfect because it's such a shock to the system. Um, and I don't, I mean, I know the NBA does classes on how to adjust and, and that's part of like the initiation to being in the league. But yeah, it just seems like the biggest, like flip upside down. I mean, you're literally in most cases coming from college, in which case like your Chipotle meals are limited because they can't be giving you too much money. Um, Speaking of workouts, I want to know the best workout you've both seen in the draft process. Who was it? What were the stakes, the situation? Mm, I love those stories. I don't know if you guys saw Hustle um, on Netflix. I did. Not yet. No, I'm going to. What did you think about it? I loved it. I I thought it was great. 
Uh, although it made me it made me not want to rush back into scouting, given how overweight Adam Sandler was, and, you know, his diet and the strain on the family. I, I won't spoil too much of it for Graham, who hasn't seen just looked it. beaten, just looked beaten down. Yeah, exactly. It might, might, reminded me of those you know, 4 a.m. wake ups at the uh, airport Marriott and Charles de Gaulle outside of Paris. Um, but um, no, it, it was really cool. And, and one of the things I think like the four of us or five of us, you know, when we watch sports movies, it's probably with a critical eye because we're around it. And some of it, you're like, yeah, that's not realistic. It's whatever. I thought they did a really good job making it realistic. You, you know, it seemed like uh, you were there in, uh, again, I don't want to spoil for grammar. Any of your listeners haven't seen it, but you were there in Spain, you know, on the, on the playground watching those guys play or uh, the scenes, you know, involving NBA players and coaches and things like that. I thought they did a really good job making it realistic. So yeah, it, it was, it was fascinating. And, and that is one of those things. It's not a joke as a, uh, as an evaluator, you're always looking for um, the diamond in the rough, especially internationally, which has gotten harder, obviously with uh, video and things like that, scouting services mm -hmm. around the world. Um, and then uh, also, you know, in, in the U S even you're looking to discover a guy first, right? So that that's kind of the race. Um, and, and it's not LeBron James. It's not Andrew Wiggins, these guys who were kind of the anointed ones. It's if you were the first guy to say, hey, that, that, that young skinny kid at Davidson, you know, the lights can do, he's going to be a pretty good shooter. Uh, or, or, or there's this kid, you know, I don't know if you guys have heard of Weber State, uh, you know, out, out in the mountains of Utah, but there's this guy, you know, Damian Lillard. I, I think, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's something special to that young man. That's kind of what the, the competitive is aspect is from a scouting standpoint. The earlier you can identify those guys, the earlier you can bring them to your bosses. Maybe you gain some kind of slight advantage. But as Graham said earlier, it is a process. And as much as the agents would like to control it and the team would like to control it, at the end of the day, you just try to make the best decision uh, with who's on the board when your team's picking. Yeah, we used to always tell the guys, like, you don't need 30 teams to love you. You just need one. I mean, it's like finding a spouse or whatever. Like, you just need one team to love you. Because I don't really believe there's an overdraft or an underdraft. That's why the mock draft system has always been very funny to me as a as like a fan, because these guys who write it don't have insight to these teams' decision making. There's so many variables to think about trading the pick, uh, moving up, moving down. So if you like the guy, I mean, Cam Johnson going to the um, the, the Suns a few years ago, everyone goes, "That's an overdraft." Why they scouted? They spent tons of time and energy and resources to decide this is their guy. Why does 13 matter versus 19? The only way you can overdraft is if you could have gotten that guy. 10 picks later and picked up a second round pick. Like if you've gotten an asset back, but if that's your mm -hmm. person, take, take your person, um, you know, to, to answer your question, Haley, about like the best. So the agents don't travel with the guys very often to draft workouts. In fact, teams would, would typically never allow that if, if they could mm -hmm. control it. A top, top one, two, three pick. Sometimes an agent will accompany because they're already as, as Ryan said, the anointed ones um, they can go. So I know that when, Marvin Williams was one of our clients. Jim Tanner traveled with him because he only did two workouts. It was Milwaukee mm -hmm. who chose Andrew Bogut one, and then Atlanta had number two. So he was only going to go to one of two places. Um, but I remember one, one story. Uh, we had Jordan McRae out of Tennessee, who was a, I mean, rail skinny scorer. Um, but this guy was an absolute junkyard dog with the basketball in his hand. I mean, an absolute bucket. And he went to a workout, and I won't – give the player's name, but apparently the there's a lottery name. pick. What are we doing? No one's going to, they're not going to listen to this. That's fair. Okay. If I remember correctly, if I remember correctly, it was Gary Harris. 
And Gary Ooh, Harris was like the, 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 was Good like name. was like the was like the big <laughs> defender at the time. Lottery pick. He was younger than Jordan. He was a bigger prospect. And Jordan was basically doing a road show of like and one mixtapes, just serving dudes up. And if you look at Jordan's time in the league, everywhere he went, he had like a thirty point game for the Sixers, a thirty point game for the Warriors, like a like a forty point for the Pistons. Like when he got downhill, it was just tough to stop him. And apparently at this workout, he was just serving Gary and then throwing the ball back at him, telling him, like, check up, check ball, like like it was a street ball game. I don't know yes. if that worked out for him or not because Gary was drafted in the lottery and Jordan was 56th, I think, to the Sixers. <laughs> but from what I was told by the team that, like, yeah, he kind of showed him up. But then that's also what that team knows. That's one day. Gary had eight other workouts where he could have been that guy and it could have just been that one day. And every team's trying not to get that, like, Darko Milicic, like, taken by one workout story. Um, so I just remember that one time where Jordan was like, hey, if you want me to follow Gary around for the rest of the workout cycle, let's do it. Like, because he was, just, he you, was just feeling good. Yeah, I, I didn't answer your question directly, Haley. I have a lot, as you can imagine. I'll give you the top three highlights that I remember. In my Celtics days, uh, Tony Allen. Uh, when Tony Allen came out of Oklahoma State, you guys know how he defends, grit and grind and all that, first team all defense. Um, we had a drill where it was a one-on-one -on -one drill. Basically, assistant coach would, would shovel pass the ball to the guy at half court, and then off the run, he'd just catch it and attack the defender. Uh, well, try to think of Tony Allen in that situation. Offensively, he's built like an NFL running back, so he just catch the ball, boom, you know, with a crossover and just power through. Keep in mind, you don't really have to shoot or pass. If you can get to the rim, you get to the rim. So he would do that offensively, and then defensively, Tony Allen guarding on an island, he doesn't need any help. You know, he'd just take the ball and, and start talking trash and all that. So that was like, wow, all right, this guy's this dude's scoring every time. Nobody scores on him. He's talking a lot. He's pretty physically impressive. So he was, you know, a pick in, in that draft and obviously the sixth tribute on, on our Celtics finals teams, uh, the one that won in 2008. And then when we lost the Lakers in 2010, he was on both those teams. Um, fast forward to my Phoenix days in 2013, a name I think it would be a lot of discussion over the last couple of weeks in free agency, uh, Victor Oladipo. Um, we had the fifth pick in the draft. We brought in Victor Oladipo. And I'll never forget his agent at the time. It was really impressive because uh, as, as Graham you know, described, a lot of times agents try to manipulate uh, the process. Understandably, they're doing what's best for their client, but said, hey, uh, basically what everybody wants is to work out against somebody better than them, if that makes sense. Because if they work out mm -hmm. against somebody who's the same as them or worse than them and that guy beats them, well, then do they move down? Does their stock fall? And, and so much of the uh, pre-draft process, at least online, is you know hype and momentum and all these kind of things. So- I remember Victor Oladipo at the time, uh, his agent, I, I go, hey, you know, we're going to bring him in. Uh, is that cool? Yeah, he said, no problem. We set up the dates. We said it's going to be a competitive workout now. This isn't, you know, one on zero against a chair. Obviously, teams want to see a player compete. Are you okay with that? And he said, Ryan, bring in whoever you want. He goes, hey, <laughs> when the game start, he goes, I, I don't care. Bring in the best guy. Bring in the worst guy. I don't care. Victor will kick all their asses. And I was like, all right. <laughs> you know, like, good. And sure enough, he did. You know, he, he really did. And he was the number two pick in the draft, you know, in Orlando and had a successful career, especially before the injuries. The final story I'll tell you is probably the most interesting to your listeners because it's the most recent. Uh, in 2015, we had a late lottery pick with the Suns, the 13th pick in the draft. Kentucky was loaded that year. They ended up having four of the top 13 picks. We had the 13th pick. Uh, we brought in Devin Booker, who was primarily catch and shoot at Kentucky. You didn't see a whole lot of ball handling. You didn't see a whole lot other than catch and shoot on a loaded team that, if you remember, went to the Final Four undefeated. They lost to Wisconsin in the national semifinal, but uh, that was – I remember. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm sure, I'm sure Frank, you do. Frank, Frank the Tank Kaminsky. 
Frank Kaminsky <laughs> and Sam Decker and Bo Ryan got him in the national yeah. semifinal. Anyway, so long story, relatively short. We bring in Devin. We know he can shoot it. We know he's a confident young man. He's got a little swagger to him. Um, but then the drills start and we say, holy cow, like this, you know, one-on-one he's going at guys basically, and nobody could stop him. And then when we play two on two or three on three and three on three, um, for those who don't know is, is the most, you can only have six players on the court at a time, uh, again, to limit, I guess, some teams hoarding players or, uh, you know, basically they want some parameters in the pre-draft process, but even in those two on two, three on three, you see the playmaking, the passing, uh, this kid's not just a shooter. There's something more there. Um, and, and then uh, the final thing I'll say about Devin is there's a one-on-one knockout drill, which Graham is familiar with, where basically um, you, you, you're on offense. If the defender gets a stop, you rotate to defense. And then when you get a stop on defense, you rotate off. That's, that's kind of how the progression goes. Offense, defense, defense, off, and then you go to the back of the line. Well, nobody could stop Devin. I mean, on offense, boom, boom, you know, basket, basket. And, and we're mm. rotating defenders at him. The defenders are getting tired. He's getting obviously a little fatigue because it's hard to score that many times in a row without a miss. And, um, you know, we're looking at uh, the clock. Jeff Hornacek was our head coach, and we have a tight, you know, window. We have everything scheduled. So, all right, guys, next drill. And, and Book goes like, no, F that. I'm not doing the next drill. Like, we'll do the next drill when these guys stop me. <laughs> and Jeff and I look at each other and said, this is an 18-year-old kid. He's telling you, know, I was in my 30s. Jeff was in his 40s, 50s, whatever. Uh, he's a very confident young man telling an NBA head coach and GM, no, no, we're doing this until somebody stops me. And we loved it. Frankly, we loved it. So, okay, go ahead. You know, and, and eventually, you know, he got a few more buckets. He got tired. They got to stop. But, um, yeah, he was available with the 13th pick. Uh, we took him, and obviously it worked out well for um, for the franchise in particular. That's amazing. Hearing all these basketball drills, I'm like, get me in a gym. I love this so much. <laughs> that is awesome. The right draft pick can take your team to the playoffs and beyond. When you're scouting prospects, you need a powerful partner. You need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is the virtual interviews. A lot of people are working from home. They do not want to come into an office. And with Indeed, it saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place. Sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit towards your first sponsored job. Plus, earn up to $500 extra in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit Indeed.com slash Spensters to learn more. Claim your credits at Indeed.com slash Spensters. Indeed.com slash Spensters. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to talk about the mock draft process, too, because that is is so interesting to me from both of your perspectives, but also from the player's perspective, because as the journalists, we make these mock drafts and we are supposed to put all these players there. We're, you know, doing the research. But how much weight does it actually hold from the conversations you guys have with each other or with the player? Do they say, oh, my gosh, ESPN has me as number one, so I'm going number one, or this outlet has me at number seven, so I'm going number seven. Do they freak out? <laughs> I, I can give you my perspective. The, the, the first answer is zero actual weight in, in terms of when that player hears their name and they put the hat on and they go to the steak dinner afterwards with the agent. That's their zero weight. But there is impact on the entire process. So first of all, 
as an agent, we don't need to spend as much time evaluating players as a, as a team. Um, so we use mock drafts sometimes just to get a general idea and a consensus of who are the top picks, who should we be going after? Now, granted, you probably need to make inroads in a year at least in advance, uh, but it's a great way to kind of a primer, right, before the draft process starts. Uh, but then once the actual, and I used to do a mock draft in college, just after college, I had to stop because I actually started getting insider information. So I felt like that was going to be a really bad thing to do as an agent. But I think I, I, mock drafts are fantastic. They're so much fun for the average fan to read one the morning of the draft to understand who's going to be picked and what they should be cheering for, where they, if they went to Kentucky, where their guy's going. That's awesome. Um, but then when I was an agent, a lot of players, especially the, the guys who were in that back half of the first round and if you're if you're being scouted in that back half of the first round that also means your range extends to being undrafted draft night can be an absolute mystery bag um and so guys are very very nervous they're anxious about where they're going to go and they're reading everything online and so um Haley and I talked about this you know months ago we had guys that would read their name and if it was really positive, that would give them a, a, a bright day. You know, it's like, hey, I see, I see 32 to Houston. I'm like, well, who wrote it? And they're like, um, looks like his name's John Doe XOXO. It's like, yeah, he probably doesn't have a lot of insight. Add John um, Doe NBA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> so it's Shams Wojnarowski. It's like it's a mix of the two. It's like, no, it's, it's not a thing. Um, and so – that would be a good day. Then also they'd see the team that they didn't want to be picked by that they're going 55th and they're like very nervous about that. And so we had to constantly tell our guys and manage their expectations. This has no bearing on what these teams are going to do. I mean, Chad Ford was the original mock kind of King. Then it was Jonathan Gavoni. Both those guys did an insanely good job scouting players, doing what they could to get information from teams to see as close as they can get. But on draft night, it's impossible. Everything goes out the window. There's so many mixed variables um, but Quinn Cook was one of my favorite clients I ever had. Um, and he needs a microphone in his hand soon because he's going to be an outstanding broadcaster one day. Um, but he was from DC where my agency was based and he basically lived at our office, um, for the entire pre-draft process. He worked out in the morning, come by my office, annoy me all day to see who was going to get drafted by. And I loved it because he was so, he was so dedicated to this process. I mean, I see why coach K loved this kid. Um, and then he would go work out in the afternoon and then come back and order pizza at 5 p.m. before I was going home like and, and play video games in our office. So he would read everything and he would be so interested. And it was never a burden for us because you wanted a client who was a professional who took their, their job seriously. And he was one of those guys, by the way, who said, who's the number one guard in, in, in the draft? Let me follow them around. And a lot of teams didn't want Quinn Cook against the, the top guys because they knew he was a four-year dog. I mean, he was an absolute dog on the court. Um, so they read them and it causes extra work for agents because we have to then tell them, no, that's not happening. Or we have to call the team and say, Hey, just curious if this is any fact, any fact to this, typically it was not, but it, it did cause some extra work and extra anxiety. But, you know, I think mock drafts from a, a, a fan and joint perspective are wonderful. From my perspective, there are two main challenges to the mock draft. Certainly, uh, as fans and on the media side, they're, they're interesting and compelling. In fact, my father, Will McDonough, was one of the original NFL insiders. He basically invented the mock draft back in like the 70s and 80s. He was one of the first to do it for the Boston Globe. So uh, I, I grew up around it. Uh, the, the challenges on the team side, I, I guess, are, are multifold. One is um, managing expectations 
with your owner in particular, and then maybe the top executives on the business side, especially if you have a, a, a top pick, um, you know, sometimes it's like, well, I, I know the world likes this guy or, per, you know, the perception is this guy uh, should be picked, but we don't like this guy. We actually like this guy better and say, well, wait a minute, look at, look at this mock draft and this and this, and, you know, you know, so um, you have to have a lot of confidence, a lot of courage in your convictions to kind of go out on a limb or go against the tide, so to speak, especially the higher you get in the draft. One great example of that, that that's recent uh, is that what uh, Danny Ainge did in the Celtics front office in 2016. If you guys go back and watch the videotape of Wick Grousebeck, who's a friend of mine, gave me my first job, the Celtics owner, when, and this was at the TD Garden where the Celtics play, Wick Grousebeck goes out to announce the pick. And there were a lot of trade rumors swirling around that pick in the Celtics. That was, you know, Jimmy Butler in particular. Um, maybe Paul George, I think, was in play. There were some NBA superstars. Uh, and so Celtics fans, I think, really wanted them to trade the pick to accelerate the rebuild. And Wick Grousebeck goes out and announces the team takes Jalen Brown, you know, wing from Cal, and that the team is keeping the pick. He got relentlessly blue. I mean, go back and watch the video. It's on YouTube. It was it was brutal. Um, but good organization, good owner, excellent president of basketball ops, uh, and really good player, obviously. You know, but but it, at the time, that was six years later. Uh, it's easy to say that was obvious. It wasn't obvious at the time, and, and that's it's it's hard to do that. So that's the first challenge. Um, the second is from a staff perspective in terms of your evaluators and your coaches um, anchoring bias. And this is where, you know, the psychology of it, I think, is interesting. The cognitive biases of um, somebody coming in and say, I, I really like this guy. Let's draft this guy. Well, wait a minute. You want to take him 10th? Uh, the mock drafts have him 42nd. Why would we take him 10th? Well, I, I just think he's really good, you, you know, or uh, if you don't like a guy and the world uh, thinks he's a top five or top 10 pick and you say, I, I don't think this guy's an NBA player. It, it's it's harder, right? It, it's it's going uh, upstream. You, you, you know, you're like the guy, um, you know, today who's saying, you know, the stock market's going to be at all time highs at the end of the year. People looking at you like, are you sure? You know, look at, <laughs> look at, look at what it's done recently. You, you know, are you, are you confident in that? Um, my, my Luna coin got wiped out last week. Um, so, <laughs> so, so th those are the challenges, right? It's you're managing people, you're managing emotions. Um, you know, to Graham's point from, from on the team side, you just try to ignore it and block it out. That would be ideal, but you really can't, you, you know, it seeps into kind of everything you do and more than anything, uh, as Eric Spolstra and Tom Thibodeau and others in the NBA say, um, you know, block out the noise, rely on the work. What did you see when you evaluated these players in person, on film, in pre-draft workouts, what do your doctors say? What do your trainers say? What do your coaches say? And then try to have tunnel vision and really ignore all the excess noise because now, especially uh, to Graham's point, everybody seems to have a, a mock draft and a blog and, and videos and this guy's the best and this guy's the worst and we have sleepers here and this guy's overrated. And, you know, so if you paid attention to all that, uh, you, your mind would just spiral out of control. It's like just rely on what our work, what we do, and hopefully our process is relatively sound. Yeah, it seems yeah. like it adds another level um, with fans, too, because the more that fans read up and are interested in more of the GM side, which very much includes the draft, which is why these mock drafts are so popular, um, the more that they can say, I can't believe you would do that when he was available here. And it just gives all this extra ammo of um, heat that they can give a team for not making the decision that they think would have been the right decision, which is something that you've had to deal with a lot. Um, because during your run, like on purpose, you guys wanted to be at the top of the lottery. And so I'm curious what for you were any unconventional red lights or, or unconventional green lights for a player, um, that the rest of us weren't able to see. 
Yeah, good question, um, Haley. I guess I'll take a step back and, and, and look at the, the process, you know, our process with the Suns. Um, when I initially got there, we were actually pretty good the first year and a half. We won 48 games the first year, and then next year started out uh, 28 and 20. But it wasn't really sustainable, I, I didn't think. I didn't think the best players in the roster at the time were good enough to lead a team to, to a championship or to compete for championships. Um, so other than maybe Sam Henke in the, in the Philadelphia 76ers, we really pivoted hard into rebuild, which, which was brutal. I mean, honestly, going through uh, all those losses, you know, stacking up young players and draft picks and future assets. As, as you know, it's a, we live in an instant gratification society. Everybody wants something today. Uh, well, you know, a lot of times these young players, you don't see the results of that work pay off for two, three, five years down the road, you know, and that's why um, these mock drafts. And one of the things that uh, I urge your listeners to keep in mind is on Thursday night, right after the draft or as the draft is going, we'll see draft grades, you know, instant reaction, draft grades. Well, how do you know? Yes. Like, like, you know, uh. there's nothing different on Thursday night than what we know right now, but some team will get an A plus, some team will get an F, you, you know, this team did okay. This team should have done that. It, it plays out over time, you, you know? And so that's one of the things that's been uh, gratifying to me. And obviously some of the individual decisions um, when I was with the Suns have been heavily criticized and deserve criticism. Uh, but, but to watch those guys doing, you know, I guess, couple years after I was out, was it three years later, they're in the NBA finals. You, you know, the guys we did all that for, Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, Mikel Bridges, uh, they brought in Chris Paul, Jay Crowder and others. But to watch those guys, it's like, well, that's why you do all that. And that's why you go through all that. So the team can hopefully get to that level, if, if even if you don't get to see it through. So, I mean, the, the challenges are um, significant. And, and, and I, I guess for me, like you evaluate the player, you try to, and, and this is one of the other things that I'll emphasize to your listeners, that it's harder from the team side than it is doing a mock draft from a fan perspective. Um, after you draft somebody or after the draft's over, you do have to put a team together, you, you know, and the team has to be functional. There need to be complementary skill sets. Uh, so I think a lot of times people, especially look back in hindsight and say, well, you know, the team X didn't draft this guy. They should have drafted this guy. Well, if it's, I don't know, star shooting guard and you had Devin Booker on the roster, like would they play together? Would it work? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But that's one of the things that's so hard. So, um, you know, I, I guess for us, it was, it, we took it to the extreme intentionally, um, you know, made some good picks, some that didn't work out. Um, if we did it again, I, I'd try to spin off some of those picks quicker. And, and that sounds maybe cold, but, but kind of, I don't say cut your losses or move on. And I think the group since I've left has done a good, good job at that. But I, I bring it up, Haley, because if you look at, the history of the NBA, I, don't, I can't think of a team that's been able to develop five, six, seven young players simultaneously and have all those guys succeed with one franchise. Usually it's, mm -hmm. you know, a couple best. I mean, with Phoenix, uh, you know, Booker, Bridges, Aiton, uh, other teams that way, you know, Golden State, they've had a great run, but it's primarily the three guys, right? Curry, uh, Thompson, Green, th those three guys. Um, so so that's Poole. one of the challenges. Now Jordan Poole. <laughs> right. Well, well I, but if you look at the duration of it over eight years, I mean, those, those right, guys have right, been there right. all eight, six trips to the finals. Um, so, so that's the hard part about it is just, you know, keeping it together, complementing each other, making the hard decisions to move on. And frankly, I think that's one of the reasons that if you enter into rebuild as an executive, you're probably not going to last very long because you're not going to get every pick right. And then uh, in today's society in particular, I feel like any mistake, and, and you guys know it, even doing a podcast, any mistake you make or anything you say uh, that people go back and look at later and say, aha, like she was wrong, you know, she was wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and and so that's that, that's where it's really hard. And that's why I think you, you see more turnover now on the team side, like with executives and with head coaches, uh, because people really laser in on your mistakes sometimes and then don't really necessarily bring up a lot of the good things you did along the way.
Yeah, I think too, you know, I'll look back you know, as an agent, you know, we were at a much slower level, but we were still kind of scouts, right? We still had to evaluate players, figure out what was going to work, you know, because we're trying to project forward, hey, if this guy's going to be a 30th pick, is there a chance he becomes that Jordan Poole-esque player? Is there an upside here? Um, like, I'm still holding stock from players that are like, just never worked out. Jimmer Fredette, I thought was that guy. <laughs> false we all did um, we all did right we all did I, I went and recruited him out in Provo um and, and you know just thought he was the best and like Jeffrey Taylor who went to the Hornets like from out of Vanderbilt another Vandy kid Wade Baldwin I thought was going to be just an absolute terror on offense um but it reminds me actually of something that was from a scouting perspective always going to stuck with me when I first joined Williams and Connolly in 2010 there was a another guy who worked beneath uh, I guess later on was was Ryan's boss Lon Babby um, Trevor Buckstein, who's currently an assistant GM with the Phoenix Suns, he was my colleague for a couple of years uh, as an agent. And he told me early on when evaluating players, do not be seduced by athleticism. That was his exact phrase. Because it's mm-hmm. so easy to check a highlight reel and get so excited about a, a Jeremy Evans or someone who's just 6'9", jumping out of the gym. But then when you look at mock drafts or these scouting reports, like what do you think they said about Nikola Jokic you know, in the pre-draft? Like, too slow, flat-footed, can't jump. Can he? Can he hang with the pros? Well, come on, he's going to be a top ten big of all time. Um, there are a lot of guys who have flaws. Draymond Green fell because of that exact reason. Like, you know, there's a lot of individual things that people will hang that you need to have everything. No, you need to have most things, and then one thing you can rely on. Like Draymond was always going to be his IQ. Like there's just very few players who see the game the way he does. Um, and so I've always tried to stick with that. And actually, when I see the Suns scouting and, and drafting, like a lot of times I put my mind in Trevor's brain thinking about how, how did he evaluate players and how is that going? I go back to people like Cam Johnson, who like every every analytical you know data point would show that Cam Johnson was one of the top players in college basketball. But still, everyone thought he was overdrafted because he was a little bit older. He's not the biggest athlete in the planet, even though he had like a world crashing dunk in the playoffs two years ago. But um, I always try to think about there's just so much that goes into scouting. And from an agency perspective, it's not just player performance, it's player personality. Jim Tanner and Lon Babby, when I was an agent, built a reputation of having high, high character players. I mean, that list I did, Shane Battier, Luke Walton, Hito Turkoglu, Zaza Pachulia, Luke Ridnauer, Tim Duncan, these guys. Like, there's a, there's a common thread there. They were all really high character players that teams wanted Tony Petit played three extra years in the league because everyone just wanted him as the veteran on the roster. Marvin Williams could have played till he was 60 years old and just been a minimum player like Udonis Haslam because every coach wants a Marvin Williams. So we evaluated that every bit as we did about a player. Do we want to represent them? Are they going to listen to our advocacy and our, our, our counsel? Um, so we, there was a lot on the back end of an agency perspective, and it came through in the draft process. We hope that when teams saw that Jim Tanner was representing a, a player, it meant something to the team. Well, if Jim Tanner's going to take that guy on, he must be, you know, smart, good family, takes care of his business. We're not going to have to worry about those rookie issues. Um, Like right now, Jim Tanner has Desmond Bain and John Morant, like two guys that are just take care of their business super well and are great representatives of of their team and for the league. So that was a big thing for us as well. and, and, And scouting was the person. Um, We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, the juiciest draft story you've ever heard. I'm just making that up, but I would love if you guys have one. (laughs) Well, what else do you guys want to talk about? What should we talk about? I just want to talk about things that you guys know that fans don't know. You know, draft night's always fun. I I was going to talk maybe about um, if it's interesting, like the draft night parties. Of like how we told every 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 client, we're like, don't do this. 
this is a bad decision. <laughs> like we, we can't we can't control what's going to happen. Like the Richard Lewis, oh. like you go to the green room and you wait hours and hours. You have a grandma looking at you. You know, like uh, it was an old story. That someone said like their grandma said, "When's my baby getting drafted?" Like to the agent, like as it's happening, we just have no control at that point. So I can talk a bit about some of those things. And the green room was always a fun place to be on draft night because um, yes. Calipari's walking around glad handing, doing his own kind of. Um, this is gonna piss off a Louisville grad. Sorry, Ailey. Um, but he's like, it's like marketing himself because all of his players are there. But uh, I can okay, talk a bit about those truth. things. We all know the truth. <laughs> <laughs> And I'd love to hear some draft night stories too, from like what it was like in the war room, Ryan. I mean, like yeah. The, have you ever? What are there ever any stories where like things have not gone to plan for you guys at all? I, I could tell the Bridges story. That that one's pretty interesting um, because that was a, a, unusual the way that trade came together with Philadelphia because that was a draft night trade and, and Philly um, drafted Mikel Bridges with the intention of keeping him. So if it's interesting, I could tell that story because that was kind of unique and, and tells you kind of what it's like on the clock trying to do a deal when you have, you know, the commissioner on the line and the pick needs to be in at a certain time and all that. So yeah, definitely. I knew, uh, I knew Mikhail's mom, T, T who was the head of HR for the Sixers when he was drafted by the Sixers. And I sent her a note like, congrats. And then like an hour later, I was like, psych, psych. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, that will go down as one of the weirdest, um, uh, things to watch ever. And just, you know, like seeing his, his, uh, his confusion, but yeah. guess guess who had to call him, Haley, and let him know that, he was, that not, he was not staying in his home. Let, let's tell it on air. I'll, I'll, I'll tell. Yeah, let's do oh, it. We're yes. on air. We're back. Yeah, we're, oh, no, we're, we're back. back. Right. Yes. Okay. Um. Ooh. Yeah. So. So with um, Mikael Bridges in 2010, excuse me, 2018 draft, we had number one pick, number ten pick. Um, we took DeAndre eight, number one, and then. Um, we, I'm, I'm sorry, we, we started the night with the first pick and the 16th pick. And we took DeAndre eight, number one. And then we didn't love anybody in that 16 range. We thought there was a tier after the mid to late lottery and then a drop to the next group of players. And that's one of the things that's, I think, important for your listeners to understand. And it's, I guess, logical, but people don't talk about it a whole lot, is the gap between players is not created equal, right? If you rank players one to 60 or one to whatever, mm. uh, sometimes it's relatively close and then there's a significant drop. Sometimes it's close. Then there's a little drop uh, for us. We thought there was a significant drop and there were a few guys that we liked, we thought would be available in the latter part of the lottery who would almost certainly not be available with the 16th pick. So we, we do have DeAndre eight, number one, the pick gets announced. And then in the first round, you have five minutes between picks and the second round it's two and obviously the league sticks to that relatively closely because it's it's a TV show as well, right? ESPN has time slots and commercials and things like that where they want to announce the pick. So um, after we draft number one, uh, looking at 16 and the draft is going relatively according to form after that. No you know, players coming out of nowhere into the top 10 or guys sliding. Although Michael Porter Jr. may have been the exception of a guy that, you know, there's some variance in that draft. Um, so. Long story, relatively short, uh, we're chasing picks around the 8, 9, 10 range. And the Philadelphia 76ers, who had a very good team, have the 10th pick. Uh, they have Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid on their roster. Uh, they're a team on the rise, you know, coming out of the process uh, era. And so, um, it, but there was some, I guess, turnover at the time, a little turmoil with the franchise. That was after Brian Colangelo left, um, you know, somewhat controversially in, in June of 2018, about within a couple of weeks, probably after Brian left the organization. So they didn't have a GM or president at the time. And so 
they drafted with the 10th pick, you know, we're calling him trying to get the pick, trying to make a trade before they make the pick, because obviously once a pick is made, you know, it's, it's the other team may not like that guy. You know, you may not want that guy. You may have wanted a different guy. And so Philadelphia, um, we're talking to them about making a trade and we say, okay, you know, what do you want for 10? And they say, well, we think we're going to keep the pick. So, okay. You know, we respect that. Now you're on the clock. Who are you going to take? And they said, Mikel Bridges, and, you know, you're a little bit deflated. You say, okay, well, that was one of the guys that we targeted that we were chasing. So we're coming back at 16. Are there still guys on the board that you guys like that you think may be there at 16? And, and they said there were. We said, okay, we give you a, a premium. It's only, you know, on paper, a six-pick difference. But we give you a premium to get Mikel Bridges because we really think he'd fit in well, you know, between Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, who we now had on the roster and it's one of those things, it's kind of a throwaway line, like you don't really expect to, to hear from them or, you know, for the conversation to happen. So sure enough, uh, getting the late lottery and 14th, 15th pick. And then, you know, we re-engage with the 76ers. And, and this is a little bit stressful because um, you have the, the league on the line on one phone. It's, it's like a hardwired line into your <laughs> draft room. And they count down, you know, Phoenix Suns, you're on the clock. You have five minutes, four minutes. And then I think in the, at the end, it gets down to about every 30 seconds. And then it's, we need the pick. We need the pick. You know, they, they you have to make a pick um, because I think if you don't, I don't, it, to my memory, it's never happened, at least in a couple decades since I've been in the league. But I think theoretically, somebody could jump you and just, just kind of take your slot. You know, if you don't get it the pick in in time, at least that's what the league threatens. So you need to get the pick in, right? And so, um, so I, you know, we have Philadelphia on, on one line, the league on the other and we're waiting on the 76ers to make their decision. Finally, within the last 45 seconds or so, they said, yes, you know, we will do the trade. We had a future first round pick that we'd acquired for uh, Goran Dragic. We traded Goran Dragic to Miami in 2015. So we threw that in along with the 16th pick, which was now being made for Philadelphia uh, for the draft rights to Mikel Bridges, who at Philly had drafted at 10. And I didn't know what name they're going to say. And that's the other risk of doing a draft night trade. There needs to be a lot of trust involved. So you say, okay, you know, we have a deal. Philly, who are you taking? You know, and, and they said Zaire Smith, a wing out of uh, Texas Tech. So we called the pick in. The risk, obviously, I, I don't need to probably explain it to you guys, but your listeners understand, is if one of the teams gets cold feet or if something changes, an owner or somebody says, no, we're not doing that anymore. Well, then you drafted the player and then the draft has moved on. So like, what do you do with the player? Um, so there's a lot of trust involved, but that was unusual because Philly drafted Bridges with the intention of keeping him. Um, we were able to re-engage and get them to, you know, change their mind, whatever you want to call it. And we did a deal after the fact, uh, which, uh, you know, leads us to how I was the one who had to call uh, Sam Goldfeder, Mikel Bridges' agent, uh, and Mikel, his mother, who were very excited about going to stay in Philadelphia after winning multiple national championships at Villanova, and his mom worked for the 76ers franchise. I had to be kind of the bearer of bad news to, hey, look, I know you had, you know, Mikel was going to stay close to home, and it was a great story, but what do you think about relocating a couple thousand miles across the country? Uh, we're trying to build something here in Phoenix. Ryan kidnapped a child is what happened. In retrospect, I think you were not the bearer of bad news, but that's just, I mean, Mikhail Bridges. We have merch coming out and he's on it. So look at him now. Right now. That's a success story. I think it's (laughs) super successful. The the way Ryan talked about how not every draft pick, like between the players, are, are created equally, it's the same thing on the agency side when you're managing expectations for the draft night to a player, there are not, there are technically 60 opportunities to get selected, but I can tell you right now, there are not 60 opportunities for that, for that player to be selected. So you go into the draft night saying, Hey, 
there's an outside shot at 11. We know they want a power forward. You had a good workout there. There's a couple guys they like. They're not even sure if you're there, but if you are, they're also not committing. 12, 13, 14, no, they're not taking you. They're not taking a power forward or they just don't like your skill set. You're not going to mix with their current roster. And so then we're, we're basically building this like like retracted draft order, you know, or just saying like these six picks aren't happening. So don't even worry, don't even worry about those hour of, of anxiety because you're not, it's not going to happen for you. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of times why we tell them don't have a draft party because we don't know when this, we saw in the NFL draft because it's a multi-day thing. There are guys at the end of the first day, all their families there. They got the, the catered, you know, selection of food and the cameras are there and they, the next night they're, they're back and they're wearing different clothes. Because it's been 24 hours since they didn't hear their name. And so we would really try to manage expectations because you just don't want a player hanging on every word that, that, that Stern's going to uh, Stern at the time and then Silver's going to say. Um, you know, John Henson knew in that draft process I referenced, five was his absolute like best opportunity. Uh, or, or sorry, top draft. You could, the Kings had five. They said if Thomas Robinson is gone, we think Henson's our guy. Well, Thomas Robinson was there, they take him. The Pistons said the same thing at nine about Andre Drummond. If Drummond's there, we're taken. If he's not, we're going to Henson. Well, then 10 or 11 went to Zach Collins with the Blazers, and then John went to – because the, the Bucks said he's not getting past us. We don't, we're not even sure he's going to be there, but you can tell him 14 is his backstop. Mm. Um, so that made John and his family feel very comfortable with that night, um, and that was one of my more stress-free draft nights where it was usually the opposite, where it's just – some guys falling down the rails, you know, down to the second round and past pick 43. I did a big historical breakdown back in the day of like when drag because second round picks are not guaranteed anything. You have to negotiate that contract with the team. They're not guaranteed any money, any years. They can put you in Europe just hold, and they retain your rights. So we would tell guys past 43, it's usually better not to hear your name that on draft night. Mm. And we would sometimes mm. tell, tell teams don't draft them because um, if they're planning just to stash them in Europe or stash them in Australia, that player is retained by one team and he can't go try out, you know, quote unquote, mm-hmm. for 29 others. So Quinn Cook, Alex Kirk, James Michael McAdoo are all my clients who, you know, we had draft plans with them and it worked out better for them not to hear their name because then they got to be an undrafted free agent, go to summer league with a team, maybe sign a little bit of money to come to camp, but then they get an opportunity to really pick and choose the best opportunity for them and not be kind of handcuffed by a team that's probably not going to ever sign them. Um, so it, it's a unique experience on draft night, but draft night parties are a nightmare for agents. <laughs> um, I've seen the sad ones just from afar. Um, I have one more <laughs> question before we go, um, which might not have an answer to off the top of your head, which is fine. But a while ago we were talking about the smallest things we've, um, I don't think on the podcast, uh, broken up with people for. And mm. Uh, what was, I think mine was the time this guy lived in downtown LA and I lived in West Hollywood at the time and it was just too far and it was Those are different countries. ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so my question for you is what is, if you can remember and obviously don't have to name the player because for this one, I understand the smallest thing that just kind of gave you pause about somebody in a draft could be from the agent perspective also. Because like you were saying, there was some like Kurt Rambis-esque accounts that you'd seen some players follow. So like something like that would make sense. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely had a guy that I won't mention the name, but we did a social media kind of audit and he was mm. following some uh, 
we'll, we'll just call them diplomatically some IG models that didn't look great. Some people who had like were very publicly espousing like drug culture and it was very, very easy to find if we can find it. And so he also missed our first pitch meeting with him and his parents. He just didn't show up. And we saw these as all red flags. Like this is not going to be a good guy to work with. He's just not going to, not going to be our style. No, no disrespect to him. We actually ended up representing him and it, and it didn't go well. So we, we, we went against our own, uh, against our own better judgment, signed the guy and, and uh, it went as expected. (laughs) Mm, I think for me, yeah, I think for me, the ones that stand out were early in my career. I started, I was lucky. I started in the Celtics front office almost right out of college at, at 23 years old. And at 23, I probably looked 13. And uh, I was basically the guy who, you know, shuttle the players back and forth to the hotel. Um, and so in driving players, you know, you know, doing hotel runs and airport runs and all that non-glamorous work you do when you start out in, in just about any job, um, you know, I just start talking to the players and they talk to me like I was one of their peers. Cause I basically was, I mean, those guys were what 18 to 22 and I'm 23. So we're in the same age range and <laughs> I won't say the player. I, I know Haley would probably press me as she tends to do to get a name. Um, <laughs> but we had a player who uh, was a good player. He ended up being a first round pick. He was a center. And anyway, just a kind of a wild guy. He was you know, a bit of a loose cannon. So he was telling me about his trip to Europe and how he really liked drinking absinthe. And, uh, you know, I was like, is that legal in the U.S.? And he's like, no, not really, but uh, yeah, I can get some. You want some? And I was like, nah, I think I'm good, man. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, he, he, he was like getting shipments of absinthe, I guess, selling absinthe, keeping some for himself. And then it was homecoming at his school. So he invited me to homecoming. He said he had a suite. We were going to party. And I was like, well, it kind of sounds fun, but I don't think that'd be the most professional thing <laughs> for me to do as a young guy. And so sure enough, and, and this is a great lesson. I, I don't know how many you know players listen to your pod, but if there are any young players listening, um, you never know who you're talking to. And so one of the things I would do, and this is true, when I was GM of the Suns, uh, I'd always talk to the people who did the airport runs about the players because, um, you know, you, you want the guy who, when he gets in town, is wondering, uh, when can I get shots up? Where can I get treatment? How can I get in the gym? Can I get a lift? Uh, some guys are wondering where, where's the nearest strip club? What's the nightlife like here? Uh, how far is Old Town Scottsdale in the party? <laughs> you know, th- those aren't those aren't <laughs> the guys you want. So it's it's a great lesson I think for me and one that stuck with me for a couple decades. You're always being evaluated, and as as somebody who's gathering information, you never know you know where that information is going to come from. But that's why you kind of ask everybody. And then as someone who's applying for any job, yeah, you never know where, where, when you share something, you never know where that information is going to go. Uh, so there were a couple of guys who, um, we, we had a, um, an abbreviation, uh, NFU, not for us, you, you know, not for us. Just, we don't want them. And <laughs> NFU, not for us, take them off the board. We'll let somebody else deal with those headaches. That's such a polite way. To yeah. Say no fucking so way. Nice. <laughs> NFW. Yeah, the W would have worked. It's the same yeah, yeah. general way. concept, you know. I am dying to know who the moonshiner of the early off <laughs> NBA was, but maybe next time when you guys come on again. Um, <laughs> of which I guess I just invited you. Thank you guys so much. This was very Thank informative. You. So fun. fun. So many good yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah some, thanks for some, having some me. Good, some good PTSD memories of, of draft week coming back <laughs> up right now. I'll be in a cold sweat tomorrow night, wondering where my guys are getting taken. <laughs> Ca- calling people like Ryan, begging them, "Come on, man! It's just the 45th pick. You just take him. He's great." 
That worked, that just like sleepwalk right. calling people. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I, I didn't even get a bottle of wine or anything from Graham. All, all that, all that begging, I, I didn't get anything. Nothing. I, I regret all those <laughs> conversations. There, there are regulations, Ryan, and we had fiduciary responsibilities. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know what your excuse is now, but we'll. we'll no, zero, <laughs> zero. I'm not sure I ever had one. Oh, thank you guys awesome. so much. This was great. Thank you. Honestly, really a lot great. of the things you guys said, even Ryan, when you were like, you guys know this, but your listeners probably don't. I was like, I'm actually, I didn't, I didn't know. know. I had no idea. <laughs> I did not know. <laughs> You're also speaking to me. Thank you so much.